Welcome to Boiling Point, the podcast to motivate ever-evolving entrepreneurs and forward-thinking movement pioneers. Our hosts, filmmaker Greg Hemmings and executive coach Dave Vale, are turning up the heat in the world's business communities. Our interviews with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers are raising the temperature of inspiration. Live from the hottest studio in this quadrant of the universe, here are Dave and Greg. This is brought to our listeners by Hemmings House Pictures and Vision Coaching Inc. Edible Matters, Ripple Effect Music Studios, and Robert Simmons. The best clothing to make you feel and look like Greg and Dave from the Bowling Point Podcast. Com. Robert Simmons, making us look good. Thank you to all of our sponsors that make the Boiling Point Podcast possible. Bam. Welcome back, wonderful listeners. Greg, good to see you again. It's been so long since well, we last Well, it's been so long that it was it was two full weeks ago that you and I had um, Craig Pinion, and mm-hmm. he brought the, the cooler of beer, mm-hmm. and I'm still feeling a little, little hazy from it. Oh, and that was geez. two weeks ago. Imagine that. Imagine that. Um, and it wasn't that long ago that you owned a cottage. That's right. We and sold the cottage. You did. And you somehow had the ability to get national coverage on selling the cottage. Tell the listeners about this because okay, I'll, I'll, it's pretty It's pretty amazing. And then we got to, and somehow you have to, and he, you are brilliant at segueing any topic, but you got to segue that into this wonderful guest we have. Okay, yeah, I, I, I know my segue. Okay. So um, I've had this cottage and I've been trying to sell it for the last three years. It's beautiful. It's on the water. Gorgeous spot. $174,000. And in America, that's probably- A pittance. It's probably $100 in America, so it's no big deal, right? So I had this idea, you know, to hack the Donald Trump um, experience in the U.S. and put out a blog saying the Trump retreat is for sale in Canada on the Kennedy Cases River. Um, using the word retreat as if you need to retreat away from uh, a Trump-led America, we've got your cottage for you. And... When I did it, the media took it up, and uh, it was national national news. And what do I know? Somebody from Portland, Oregon, who was visiting New Brunswick, actually saw the uh, the news, and they bought it. And the lesson here is don't be afraid to hack a system. And the transition here is our guest today, Joe Brewer, is a good friend of mine. And when the word hacker uh, comes out of my mouth, since meeting Joe, uh, I can't get Joe out of my mind when I think of the master hacker. And uh, I think this would be a good time to bring Joe in. Joe, welcome to The Boiling Point. Hey, it's great to be here. Joe, 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 Joe let me yeah. ask Joe quickly. Joe, what do you think of that segue there that Greg, you know, that, you know, went from the cottage to bringing you in on a hacker segue? Was that, what do you think? Well, considering that the uh, practical definition of a hack is an elegant solution to a hard problem. I would say that uh, you kind of knocked that one out of the park. <laughs> he does it every time. There you go. Well done. <laughs> so, Joe, what, what, why don't you give our listeners and Dave uh, a little introduction about who you are, and and let's let's stay on that theme of of uh, of hack of uh, hacking culture, if you will, and uh, and and we'll go from there. Totally. So, I, I like to start by telling people that. I was born and raised on a chicken farm in rural Missouri, and uh, that I kind of graduated high school around the time that the internet became a thing for the public. And so what that means is that I was like knowledge starved and like 
hungry for a bigger world than my little bitty town uh, where I'd grown up. And so, like, when I went off to college and started learning about the bigger world, I got really interested in things like the philosophy of knowledge. You know, how do people come to know how the world works or even how their own minds work? And uh, how do we measure and track patterns of change in the world? And so I did this originally as, like, a physicist, so studying the change in physical systems, but it turns out that a lot of the same tools and, instu- and, and intuitions can be used for studying changes in social systems. And so that brings us to this idea of culture hacking, or another phrase I like to use is culture design, which is that there are discernible patterns in culture. We can study them. They can be understood. They can be tested and validated. And then we can use our knowledge of those patterns of culture and how culture is changing to help guide changes that people actually want. And so uh, relating that back to the Donald Trump thing, if, if those of us living in my, uh, oh, my prized country that is just, you know, really shining for its brilliance on the world stage at the moment with this election, um, if those of us are unhappy with the way that it's looking at the moment, maybe, just maybe, we could do something to make it better. <laughs> like, like, like buy Greg's Cottage. Yeah, or at least have a big beach party there, right? Like- <laughs> <laughs> so, so Joe, um, well, for Dave's benefit, I, I met Joe in San Diego uh, at Sustainable Brands. I met him at a at a neat little party where where this really awesome ukulele band was playing. If I recall, um, there's some really good local craft beer as well. The next day, I saw Joe um, lead a workshop, and the the room was packed. And Joe, you blew my brain, the stuff you're talking about. Like I, as a simple person, I understood every single word you were saying, but you were talking about concepts that were so much higher than the average person could ever really understand. And you were able to bring them down to a level that I, I, I was completely on board with what you were talking about. Why don't you give us what we call in in Canada a Coles Notes rundown of the session that you gave because maybe that would give us a little context of why I I just got so excited to you know to continue our conversations together. Totally. So first off, the session was titled Evonomics, which is combining two words: evolution and economics. So we were talking about how economics needs to evolve, and that. Uh, If you were to go out and look at the world today and see the way that most people are trained in economics and most of the way that they create policies and practices in economics, there's a whole bunch of, like, collective stupidity. There's, like, a lot of really dumb ideas that somehow have become established as the ideas that get taught. And so one of these ideas is that society doesn't exist and that the functional unit that we use to study human culture is the individual. And specifically the individual who is assumed to be selfish and greedy. And this is what in the parlance of economics is called the theory of rational action. The idea that individual people will make rational choices that give them the best deal for themselves. And that somehow through this magical hand of the marketplace that this leads to great solutions for everyone. And um, if we think back a couple of years to that big financial crash that happened, Mm -hmm. pretty clear that uh, real human nature and real societies do not work the way that these dominant economic mythologies say that they should. So what we covered in that session was a set of 
insights that have been gained from different fields of research to tell us, you know, kind of like to give us landmarks to say there is a map here and the map is, you know, it's mapped out well enough that we can see the general contours of what real economics is. But to really get economics right scientifically, the middle of it all, we have to understand what it means to be human. So that's kind of what we, we hit on that with a, a number of different things and created a lively discussion and debate, blew Greg's mind, and, you know, the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> so, so, wow. Well, like, that, I mean, just... I mean, I see why you blew your mind because your your mind goes to all these different places when you just in that small description. What I'm wondering is what, in your opinion right now, Joe, is, you know, is stopping or, or, or stalling the traditional market from kind of being more human? I think there are like two answers to that question if we kind of start simple. The first answer is the problem of stories. And the second is the problem of institutions. Okay. And so the problem of stories is that we have a lot of stories out there in the world that if we look back historically, we'll see that famous intellectuals throughout history keep getting co-opted where their name is put on the opposite of what they think. And so one of these examples is Adam Smith. So Adam Smith was a moral philosopher who wrote this famous book, The Wealth of Nations, just happened to come out the same year that the Declaration of Independence was written in, in 1776. And so this book is taken out of context, and a lot of stories are told about Adam Smith to justify selfishness and greed and the formation of monopolies for companies to be able to use consolidated wealth to distort markets for their own gain, and that gets us into the second part, which is the problem of institutions, that we have a whole bunch of institutions that over the span of the last couple hundred years have been built up around these stories. And so even when someone is like learning what the real stories are, uh, they sit within these institutional settings where their options for what they can do or the practices that people normally do are like way different from what those stories would say. And so that just means there's like, um, it's almost like if you put a bottleneck in front of a, a river, then only a little bit of the water deal would get through. There are these structures in place that just keep the change from happening. And so it's, it's a really interesting predicament that uh, just in this period of the last few decades, we've, we collectively have figured out answers to a lot of the questions that have nagged these male philosophers for centuries. And yet our institutions don't respond to them, don't incorporate them, and don't update to, uh, you know, to express them. And, of course, that, that really brings us to a, a point where there is something that needs to be hacked, which is, you know, if we look at the institutions being the big concrete dams, um, how do we hack it without blowing it up? and ca causing mass <laughs> destruction, but how do we hack it in a way that it leaks and change happens in, in, in a, in a non-chaotic way? <laughs> well, I would maybe turn that around because it just happens part of my training is in complexity science. So when I hear the word chaos, I have like a, a pretty specific meaning for it. Okay. Uh, there's a, a, like a mathematical definition for chaos. And chaos is anytime there's a, a system that's changing, or even a really small change 
will become so big really quickly that it's effectively impossible to predict its future. And so this is like the way the weather is. Weather is chaotic after a few days. The uncertainties in our forecasts get so big that it's just not possible to say what the weather is going to be in like two weeks. Um, so we look in that way, then we can say, you know, what we really need is we need guided chaos because we need changes in the system to be able to explode, to grow up really big and kind of shift the direction of things. But it needs to happen in a way that doesn't destroy our communities, doesn't destroy the environments we depend upon for our communities to exist and, and all that other stuff. And so um, thinking in that way, when we ask how do we hack culture? One of the key things is that collective stories, you know, mythologies shared across an entire culture, there are like two linchpin places where they get reenacted over and over again. One of those places is in the social learning that happens when you're like a kid and you're growing up in a culture and you're learning about the culture from all the adults. So this is like formal and informal education. And the other one is in what I might call the social norms or the social pressure. That when we're around our peers, whatever stage of life we're in, we're going to have a lot of pressure to think and behave like all of our peers do. And so these are like the two linchpin places. That if we can start to shift the kinds of stories and the kinds of practices, then either or both of those places could like un unclog the dam and create a flood. Like so, what are from in your you know from your perspective? What are some examples of stories being I don't know retold or told differently or or shared in a way that's kind of causing a shift, like contemporary? Well, I'll, I'll give a yeah, I'll give a really big one, um, which happened between the late 1960s and the early 1970s. And so, what was happening during this time is. You know, we have the, the NASA space program and similar in the Soviet Union where there were people going into space. And some of these astronauts and cosmonauts took pictures of the Earth from space. It's like the first pictures were taken with satellites, but then there were actual photographs taken by the space walkers or the people in the spacecraft. And when you look at this, this famous picture called the Blue Marble, which is the first photograph of the entire disk of the Earth taken from space. This happened like 40 years ago, just just a little bit longer than I've been around because I'm turning 40 in November. So within my lifetime, this iconic image came into being, and it has given us a mental container for the entire planet, which is a circle with color inside it and blackness outside of it, emptiness outside, fullness within. When you look at that image of the blue marble from space, one thing you see is that all of the normal boundaries that we live by in our cultures, political borders and so on, those things don't exist on that picture. And while it's sometimes really subtle, the effects of this image, what it did was it created a mental hack on our stories of separation. Because for almost 80 years now, anthropologists have known that biologically speaking, there's no such thing as race. Race is culturally constructed. It exists as categories within our cultures. But if you study the genetic history of humans, you find there's this thing called phenotype, which is just a fancy name for the physical traits that people have. And we don't have different races for blue-eyed people versus brown-eyed people. So why do we have different races for white-skinned people versus dark-skinned people? 
it's because they're culturally constructed. But we don't have a container to see the unity of humanity before we have this iconic image of the Earth in space. So this was a time when a new technology enabled a new artifact of culture, created a new kind of symbolism of cultural storytelling, and has gradually infused its way into our consciousness so that most people alive today or that were born after the 1970s have more of a globalized perspective about humanity. That's an example of a culture hack. Yeah. Totally shifting stories. But, you know, and, and all, I guess, I'm guessing all three of us born after 1970. So that that explains, actually, I've never thought of that through that lens before. That's a great example. Yeah, Thank and, you, Joe. And it's really interesting, too. <clears throat> Joe, uh, our company is a B Corp. And uh, when I look at the values of, of the B Corporation movement of changing the face of capitalism, um, it feels like it's a brand new thing. You know, and uh, it's exciting. It's a new movement. There's less than 2,000 B Corps in the world, i.e. it's just the beginning. But if we look at what a lot of the um, icons of this were trying to do in the 60s, you know, to really lay the foundation for this stuff, um, it's, uh, it's a real old concept, you know, kind of dating back to that similar period when that photograph came. Um, where there's this new consciousness uh, of unity, this concept of unity. And we, we hear it in pop culture and in music uh, of that era as well, specifically Bob Marley, and it comes to my mind, um, really preaching this concept of, of global unity and breaking down the barriers of race and whatnot. Um, how about um, hacking our, our understanding of what capitalism is? Because right now we are seeing that shift, but... The, the strong majority of capitalism is still the old model, um, but we are seeing little hacks. I see the B Corp movement as a, a small hack that's starting to really uh, make some change. But what are some other other hacks that are happening right now that are changing the face of capitalism? Or, or maybe it's not even capitalism, of, of an economic system, in, in essence. Well, it's, it's helpful to go back and know where capitalism started. And um, there's like a longer story that goes back to like the 1300s, and you look at things like the Magna Carta and some of those transitions in governance and social organization and all that stuff in Western Europe. And I'm not going to tell that story because there's just too much detail there. And I'm also not a historian of that era, so I would mess some of it up. But there's a, there's a part of the story that's really insightful, which is what was called the enclosure movement in the 16th and 17th century in Britain which in many ways is considered the birth of modern capitalism. And what happened during this time was if you looked at all the, the peasant farmers, because, you know, there was like an aristocracy, people lived in a feudalistic society, and there were these monarchies there and all this stuff, and the people living on the, on the land lived cooperatively on the land, meaning that they had their own, like, local community cultures, and they collectively managed the land and they helped each other with the land, and the land was not fenced off. And so this enclosure movement was a time when all of the fences were built. And one of the things that happened was there was a change in the law through the House of Commons, uh, the, the Parliament of Britain, that allowed people who were owners of the deeds to land to be able to close it off with a fence and then charge rent for people to live on it and use it. And this is what's considered the birth of capitalism. So if we look at its essence, what was capitalism when it started? It was taking of commonly shared resources among a community of people 
And then having those with the money and power being able to come in and close it off and privatize it and then charge money and extract profit from the people that used to be using it. So one of the consequences of this was that this led to Charles Charles Dickens' great novel, The Tale of Two Cities. Because what happened with all these peasant farmers became so caught up in debt as they were paying all these rents, they couldn't afford to stay on the land. And as they would starve and be unable to support themselves, they went off to the cities where there just happened to be this burgeoning industrial era where there was a strong need in the factories for really cheap labor. And people that were desperate enough to work like 18-hour days, possibly dying even at the age of 10, in really horrible environments just to survive. And so this is like, when we hear the story of capitalism today, there's so much confusion around it because people don't know where it came from. But when we recognize that it came from this closing off of commonly shared, commonly managed resources that communities depended on, then things like cooperatives and the B Corps are like a going back to a balanced place of saying, you know, we should have some privatization, but it should be thoughtfully done in a way that recognizes that there are commonly shared things. And those commonly shared things are why we can do stuff in the first place. And so that like is an undercurrent that goes back hundreds of years in some respects. And we just went way too far in one direction. And we got to bring balance back to it. So do you, and do you see, like, I'm just thinking of, and I, you know, actually I think of, you know, you, you share this quite, quite commonly is, the, is the, the sharing economy, Greg, um, you know, and, and the benefits of that, which, you know, it's, it's hard to dispute really for me. And, and it's, we're seeing all these examples and we had, um, a guy on not too long ago that talked about, you know, this, this idea of sharing rides and, and, um, what was the name of that organization again? The Halifax Rideshare? No, he was based in um, in British Columbia. Um, uh, so, geez, of course, it's escaping us now. Boiling point quiz. Yes, fail, failed. Greg fails. <laughs> so does Dave. But but the idea that you know that we're moving away from, or, or some some some, I guess, pockets of our society are moving away from. We probably always have a way, and but it seems to be coming more of a. Uh, almost like a mainstream idea or, or, or recognized or understood idea. Um, so, so how do you see the pendulum shifting? Like where, where are we now in terms of, you know, kind of that idea of complete enclosure to, uh, you know, the cooperative, like where, where do you, you know, if we use those as diff, you know, both ends of the continuum, where, where do you see us now, Joe? Uh, I think we're in a place of crisis and opportunity. Um, we're in a place where a whole bunch of things are getting broken enough. They've kind of been broken for a while, but they're getting broken enough that uh, they really can't continue much longer. And one of those things is this rent-seeking, this extracting of profit. Um, you know, there's a, a word for extracting of profit in the biological world. It's called cancer. Cancer is when some of the cells of your body stop being cooperative and start taking money for themselves. What they end up doing is growing uncontrollably and eventually killing the host organism. And that's kind of where capitalism is right now, is uh, capitalism is structured in a way where there's a power difference. Those who have capital get to make the rules, and they tend to make rules that bring them more capital. And so all of the inequality in the world and all the poverty in the world, those are design features. You know, if I was a software geek, I'd say that's a feature, not a bug. You know, those aren't accidents. That's how the, the economy was built. And that's a, that's a desired outcome in the way that it's created. So, like, what happens when a society gets too uneven and too unequal? Well, you get breakdown of trust. We've already seen that happen. 
you get uh, increasing uh, levels of, of public health problems, you know, crime, depression, suicide, all kinds of bad things that happen. And then you either have a breakdown and a collapse of the society or you have a renaissance. You have a rebirth of community. And so I see lots of inklings that communities are trying to be reborn. Um, you know, this kind of move back toward localism while trying to preserve what we have that's good about globalism. And one of the big things that's keeping it from happening is there's this huge parasite on the planet called the financial system, which does like speculation. It's basically like a giant casino taking all of everyone else's productive activities and turning it into a crapshoot for throwing the dice for rich people. And that's, that's, what, that's what Wall Street is. You know, that's what the, the New York Stock Exchange is. And, um, and I see more people that are going to realize that that's just a giant Ponzi scheme. I think that's what we saw with Occupy Wall Street was a lot of people kind of see the game as rigged. And there's a, there's a hint that the writing's on the wall. Um, and then the other thing I should just name, because it's important to us, is that there is such a thing as the real world. And so even though economists like to pretend that the environment doesn't actually exist and they don't put it on their ledgers, um, there are environmental debts that have been building up. Mm -hmm. Climate change is just one of them. And so this is kind of like a giant uh, yacht party out in the ocean that's running out of gas and about to run ashore of uh, an atoll with a bunch of like reefs and going to tear its bottom out. The boat's not going to be able to continue much longer question really is how much of this it, it takes down with it when it sinks. And so that's, that's kind of the place we're at right now globally. It's a scary thought. I mean, even on a, on a local level, I think of where we're, where we live, um, you know, we're, you know, we're seeing government trying to do, uh, well, I guess they're doing less with a lot less, you know, and there's this expectation that, you know, when you see this social safety net kind of disappearing, Right. And and cues and healthcare, you know, and this idea of universal healthcare. Hearing people talking about it differently in even the last five years, mm -hmm. it's fascinating, you know. And it's all connected to the to that parasite. I think you're describing, Joe. And also back in 2009, I remember speaking at a, a, a progressive think tank in Edmonton called the Parkland Institute, and uh, and they were noticing that the the advisors to the conservative movement of the United States were starting to advise the conservative movement of, of Canada in a more consistent way and bring their messaging and their strategies there. One of their first targets was the healthcare system. So you're starting to see the, uh, the narrative battles, you know, these, this war between memes, this war between ideas you're trying to spread among people is now on your home turf and not just with the tar sands. It's at the level of culture as well. So here's the, here's the silver lining of it all. The silver lining is that, um, I guess I'll tell it with a different story. It's a story about graduate students, monkeys, and bananas. Okay. <laughs> so, so I'm going to step back. It's a little digression, but I'll bring it back to why, why I have hope. So back in the early 1990s in Parma, Italy, which is a place that has this very old university, has done great research for a long time. And they have a big neuroscience research group there. So there's this uh, project they have where they have a monkey and they suck these electrodes in its brain and the part of the brain that controls the movements of the hand. So anytime this monkey moves its hand to grab something, there's a little clicking sound on their detector. 
Now, here's the crazy thing. This graduate student is like, has the detector on, but he's not really like, you know, doing a study, but he's about to have his lunch, and he picks up a banana, and the monkey looks at him, the monkey doesn't move at all, and there's a clicking sound. And they're like, wait a second, that clicking sound's only supposed to happen when the monkey grabs something. The monkey didn't move its hand. What the hell's going on? So they started digging in, and they found out, after a lot of other uh, studies, that there's this part of the human brain, a part of the brain of all mammals, so it's monkeys and humans and dogs and cats, etc. that they now call mirror neurons. Mirror neurons basically are the part of your brain that coordinates your body motions, like the movement of your hand, and you can either fire them when you're actually moving your hand, or you can fire them when you're watching someone else move their hand, but then just tell your muscles not to move. Now, what does this have to do with the global crisis? Turns out it has a lot, because this is the neurological basis for empathy. This is what tells us scientifically that we are able to see other people and feel through reenactments in our own body what are pretty good approximations to how they feel. So we are hardwired for being socially connected to other human beings and to even to other animals and even non-animals. You can have empathy for a tree because your brain is able to do this. So when these people that are trying to tell us that the world is full of greedy individuals, that human nature is to get the best for me, and that the name of the game is he who dies with the most toys wins, that those people are basing their arguments on utter, complete bullshit. The real science of human nature says we're social, we are wired for connection, we feel a deep need for belonging with other people, and that we actually feel the pain and suffering of others. So therein lies this deep capacity for people to come together and form communities, which is why we've done it in the past. And as we go through these turbulent times in the next few decades, we have a lot of ability to do it again. That That is a wonderful story about being human. Mm-hmm. That, that was, and you brought it right back, Joe. It was perfect. <laughs> Joe, that's <laughs> got to be yeah, a book. Bananas, monkeys, uh, and Italian neuroscientists. That's got to be a book. Joe, um, we uh, here, here's something that Dave and I need to hack. We need to hack the uh, the length of our our podcast because we only get started <laughs> on these conversations, and already we have to wrap up, which is a bloody shame. But um, we we do ask this from time to time. We'd love to have a follow up on this because it's there's so much to talk about here. And I'm so inspired about just the concept of any of us being able to think hacker style about what what are, what is the real change collective change we want to see and how do we hack that and it's just you know meeting you in San Diego really uh, really inspired me not that I hadn't considered the the, the hack in the past but really seeing uh, or hearing it explained in such a dynamic way I think our listeners would love to he- hear more of this down the road as well so thanks for this man sounds like no, it sounds like fun to me. And uh, since we need to wrap up, I'll leave you with one incredibly simple hack that everyone can do. The next time you see a stranger on the street, smile. Yeah. It's incredible what happens when we are in a place where we feel like people are friendly. Yeah. You contrast that with a place where you feel like people are scared or maybe hostile, and they are like completely different worlds. So the simplest culture hack you can do is to just look at people, nod your head, and smile at them. And it is incredible what happens if you do this over time. So there's an easy one everyone can do starting right now. Joe, I love it, man. You, uh, every dialogue I've had with you, uh, I've been inspired, man. So thank you for that. And uh, really looking forward to our further 
conversations. Dave, you had one more. No, no. I just gonna just gonna ask for the listener's sake and my sake. Uh, how do we learn more about you, Joe, and, and and this topic? So the easiest way is to go into Google, type the word Joe, followed by the word Brewer, and see what pops up. Um, because I make myself easy to find on the internet. Okay. Um, but uh, I have a, a website called ChangeStrategistForHumanity.com. Um, I like to make friends on Facebook. I like to share ideas on Twitter. And so I, I just make myself really easy to find. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And uh, I I will uh, I'll take up that challenge of the, the, the small, very simple cultural hack. So appreciate it, Joe. Nice meeting you. I, I hope to meet you in person at some point. Ditto. I hope it's over beers in a, a Trump retreat somewhere. <laughs> Trump retreat, baby. <laughs> Done. Joe, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Awesome. <laughs> All right, brother. Take it easy, man. <laughs> All right. Take care. Oh, See you, Joe. Bye. Take care. Um, incredible. Like, uh, he's only scratching the surface. Like, oh, uh, totally. His, his thinking is, uh, it blows my mind. Uh, it is. And you know what he, I mean, for me, what he just kind of described in, in less than half an hour and kind of the journey he took us on. I mean, it was so elegantly told and and so rich at the same mm-hmm. time. And you know, you kind of like yeah, we're I'm sitting on the side, you know, on, we're on the other side of this, thinking yeah. like just keep talking, Joe, because I don't have a clue what to ask you right exactly. now. But I'm just trying just to learn more. I'm just trying to <laughs> I'm just trying to grasp what he e- said. E- even the concept of capitalism, like I I always have thought that innately capitalism was a good thing. I've never thought of it that way, yeah. right? The well, enclosure look, movement. We 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 gotta we gotta stop and go to our next guest, but um, I really want to continue that conversation with Joe. Done. Thank right, you. Let's go hack. All right. Okay. So, Greg, you know what? We have the luxury of doing this podcast, which we've enjoyed for a hundred and thirty odd episodes. Um, and the reason we're able to do this is because we've got these great companies supporting us. Um, a couple we should mention. One, I'm a big fan of, Hemmings House Pictures. And uh, that's your company. Thanks, Dave. And it is great work. Uh, you just got to go and check out their website to see it. Um, I've actually used you guys a number of times to do a documentary, do a corporate video, and uh, so it's accessible to small and large businesses and wonderful at helping um, business tell story and, and movements, to, you know, help shaping story around, you know, wh- what's happening in the world. So thank you to HHB. Well, I, I'd like to say thank you to one of the, the Hemings House team members, uh, Tim Davidson, and we're actually in his his uh, other company's studio right now, Ripple Effect Music. So uh, Tim is yet another community-minded person who is essentially donating his studio, uh, the studio that we use at Hemings House to make all of our films sound good. Um, so he's a part of this. Another really important uh, person uh, is Matt, uh, Matt Weber. Mm-hmm. And he his company is uh, Edible Matters. It's an incredible restaurant out in Hammond's uh, Plains outside Halifax, Nova Scotia. He's the one that edits this, all this all the stuff together, puts the show notes together, and uploads these podcasts every single week. And then going back to my good friend who I'm looking at right now, Dave Vale, the big guy with the biggest muscles I've ever met in my life, who also, Dave, you um, you have to know that without you in the early days of me shaping Hemming's House, I probably wouldn't have created Hemming's House. So um, Vision Coaching has helped so many companies and entrepreneurs find their coach approach and create companies that actually can make the change in the world that they want to see. And uh, so Vision Coaching 
uh, and uh, everything that you bring to the table, bringing Kim uh, in as well to help us make this podcast a, a success. We say thank you so much. And the great news, the other night, a few weeks ago, you and I bumped into a previous podcast guest, Mr. Paul Simmons himself. Why don't you tell our, our listeners about our, our newest gold sponsor for our podcast? Yes, Robert Simmons is a fabulous place, um, well-known to people throughout New Brunswick, but also um, you can shop there online, men's and women's clothing. And um, uh, Paul Simmons, who is, uh, I, I mean, I think they've been going on 20 years now, the founder of the company, um, brings the customer experience to a whole nother level. I say that because I shop there. Um, you know, if you were to say, Dave, you look really good wearing that particular suit, um, I would say, well, thank you. And I would have to credit Paul and his staff, which is fabulous. And it's, it's an incredible experience. You've had it before shopping there. Um, I look great. Look what, at me. And, and what's the experience like? What are they you, walk, you walk in the door, you literally get asked if you'd like to have a, a glass of scotch or an espresso. And that's the beginning of the experience. And you walk out with a new set of clothes that makes you feel like uh, feel like a well-dressed man or woman, depending on uh, on what you are as you walk into this incredible place. They have an incredible uh, magazine that they publish, I believe, quarterly. And uh, the next one's coming out, the fall issue of 2016. Um, they always, what we enjoy, and I think what aligns us with what, what Robert Simmons does is is they make a point of, of covering interesting, um, often uh, business-minded, you know, uh, entrepreneurs, um, community leaders in their publication, and they believe in promoting local. And it's coming out soon, and we have the good fortune of interviewing some of the people in the, uh, in the September issue. Coming up, so uh, robertsimmons.com. And uh, yeah, so that's great. Thanks to our sponsors. And if anybody else uh, in, the, in the podcast sphere is interested in helping us uh, push our Boiling Point movement forward, be in touch. Thanks for checking out this episode of Boiling Point. Remember to rate and subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Boiling Point Pod. To see more from Dave Vale, check out leadershipunleashed.ca or visioncoachinginc.com and on Twitter at Dave underscore Vale. And to catch up with Greg, visit hemmingshouse.com and at Greg Hemmings on Twitter. Thanks for listening and remember, keep that pot boiling. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.